Hello everyone and welcome to Indian Genes. In our earlier two episodes, we spoke about the origins of the universe and our very own evolution. As we close down for this season with our vision of bringing ideas home, we will now take this to the next level and try to understand what happens on this journey as we move forward. We talk about technology, AI, robots, video games, data security, social media. And my guest today is a principal data scientist and leading voice in the field of AI based in the city of New York. I now present my very electrifying conversation with David Yakobovich. So welcome to the podcast, David. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here in Indian Genes. And uh, I do know that there are a lot of people here who are very eagerly waiting to listen to all that you're going to be telling us about AI. Thanks so much for having me, Jokum. Such a pleasure. Great. So David, before we start and get into the details of what we are talking about today, why don't you let my listeners know a little bit about yourself and uh, what got you interested into AI, what is your background and something that maybe nobody knows about you before today. Thanks so much. Yeah, I've been in industry since back in 2010 and got started in actuarial science. Uh, I've evolved that career path from actuarial science into data analytics and business intelligence and data science and AI over the past 10 years. And for myself, I got really fascinated about the industry uh, given how the future of work is constantly evolving. Uh, college degrees have been evolving very fast. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, for myself, I've seen just the industry continue to evolve. And so in my current capacity, I work as a principal data scientist at Galvanize. Uh, we're one of the leading boot camps in the United States. And I work on enterprise engagements, helping reskill and upskill uh, employees of Fortune 500 companies. I'm also the podcast host for Humane, which is Human AI. It's a f- leading podcast on human-centered design, AI thinking, automation, X-skilling, and the future of work. And for me, I really got interested in this space by seeing how technology has shifted so rapidly. Uh, my father, in fact, is an electronic engineer and an entrepreneur who ran a business for many years in Florida. And that's uh, in South Florida, he would work on repairing traditional electronics, whether that's televisions, VCRs, DVDs, microwaves, um, audio tuners, Whoa. you name it. And it was super cool industry that he'd been a part of for almost 40 years and Right before his eyes, the industry evaporated. It completely changed. Right. And it changed because technology went digital and there wasn't much to help in that shift and change for people. And so that really sparked a passion in me to get involved in the space of helping train others um, as well as uh, creating uh, the possibilities for humans and machines to work together. And I think that's where we're at in 2019. We're just beginning to explore possibilities for humans and machines. Absolutely. That's great. And that's like, that's what I can see. You uh, not only have the intellect, but the pedigree as well from, from what you've just been telling us. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I think education is so important, and whether that's going with degrees or now going with the nano degrees and micro learning options, I think it helps. And I think the future of work is not one where you get a degree uh, when you're 18 or 21, and then you get a job and you work for the rest of your life. I think it's going to be a future where you have micro learning, and that means every few years you're picking up new postgraduate degrees and diplomas and certificates and covering different concepts that are relevant to constantly upskill yourself. Uh, talking to a lot of our Fortune 500 clients, we're seeing that now that uh, the degree that used to be business administration right. um, is no longer powerful enough. So that's why a lot of individuals are going into entrepreneurship or minoring in computer science or data science. So it's a, it's a very fast-paced industry. Exactly. And uh, being a fast-paced industry, I think a lot of people who are listening to this would probably want us to slow it down a bit as far as uh, what we talk so that they can, you know, uh, follow through with us. So let me ask you, uh, David, we do know that the history of artificial intelligence would date back to antiquity with philosophers and uh, thinkers at that time, thinking about electronic men or the automatons or mechanical beings. Uh, Gulliver's Travels had uh, one such being that was precisely uh, mimicking artificial intelligence at that time. But how, how would you look at this era before artificial intelligence actually took off? It's so interesting that you asked that, Joachim. You know, last night I was watching... Uh, the Da Vinci Code, right? Wow. And so this is uh, you know, a movie back from in 2006. And watching it um, in summer 2019, it sparked goosebumps for me to see that in that movie, there were these fanic robots, which are already moving boxes at banks and automation with facial recognition. And all this interesting technology just 14 years ago. Right. So when everyone's thinking about the new AI craze, it's it's not just here in 2019. In fact, it's been, as you said, going on for, for generations. And whether that's from ancient times or to more modern times like the 1940s, when we had Alan Turing, um, this, this famous scientist who was trying to create a machine that could think um, and outsmart a human uh, before we really had uh interfaces that could digitally display context and media. And uh, actually earlier this year, Alan Turing um, posthumorously uh, just won what's known as the Nobel Peace Prize, but in the computer science space uh, for his contributions to artificial intelligence. And so the modern era of AI has been going on for now almost 80 years. And post the work that was done with these giant uh, mainframes where you plug in cables to each other in the 1940s, that accelerated in the 1980s with a lot of um, big mainframes with digital displays that you saw from companies like uh, IBM and, and companies like uh, Xerox uh, in, in the park area in San Francisco. And all that work started to think about heuristic and search right. and process and all these words I throw out, it's all about how do you make a machine think like a human. 
often in the AI space, two big thoughts that people think about is, am I trying to think like a human or behave like a human? Mm -hmm. The truth is behavior is erratic. It's interesting, um, but it's interesting to us humans because we're all different and we like to find things that are stimulating in behavior. But thinking is where there is consistency and thinking means solving a problem, finding numbers that add together, finding the shortest path for an airplane uh, an airplane flight. And so since the 1980s, that's where the work has been on getting solutions that no longer require the human brain, but we could use software. And that software began in things like Lotus Notes and Microsoft Excel uh, and has evolved into programming languages all the way from C++ uh, into what's now modern, this new AI stack of Python and R and Julia and all these modern programming languages. Right. And the modern evolution of the AI work has just been around for the past seven years. In fact, in 2012 is when the deep learning architecture, which we'll get into later in our conversation, right. uh, emerged. You know, This is where companies like Google said, we're gonna create um, new algorithms and new techniques and new hardware to solve these problems. And the cost of these chips and these algorithms started to get affordable for consumers uh, back in 2012. And that's ushered in this new wave of AI, both in the enterprise and consumer space that um, started to be very um, interesting from 2013 to 2016. And now since 2017, we've started to see implementation of different types of techniques, primarily in three fields. One is automation, the second is computer vision, and the third is language processing. So those are the three we've seen uh, just in the past three, four years, and it's exciting to see where that's gonna be going over the next five to 10 years. Absolutely, and things have moved the way they've moved, and uh we are at a stage right now where we have to try to put it together and try to understand what, what comes next. And you mentioned a, a very interesting point earlier that I would like to get back to, where you spoke about Alan Turing and the Turing test. So I think it would be very interesting for my listeners if you could give us a brief on the process or what was the concept and idea behind uh, Turing wanting to figure out the difference or how would he come to a difference between, let's say, a conscious being and something that is mechanical or, or what is the line that was drawn in the sand to say, this is where we, we get to know who's who. Sure. So the simple thought process on this concept called the Turing test, um, I'll equate it to one of my um, movies that I really love about AI called Ex Mahina, which is... Um, yeah, that's a movie one of that my favorites as well. Yeah, super good and came out a few years ago. And, and they had a scene in this movie where there was a human interacting with the machine. And what happened is the machine would ask a question and the human would have to think, is this being asked by a human or is this being asked by a machine? But um, in the movie, I think what they did, if I recall, is the machine wasn't actually in the room at one point and then it was in the room. And then what happened is the machine started having behaviors that were human-like. Right. And it was up to the human to consider, 
is this just a machine or is this beyond the machine? Am I interacting with something that seems human-like? There's many ways to think about this. I mean, something that might be more simple in 2019 is, you know, you interact with a chatbot for an e-commerce site. And when you're trying to return uh, a product or buy a product, you're not always certain. Is the chatbot a human on the other side or is it purely a chatbot run by code? And in fact, a lot of customer service today is attempting to break the Turing test to say, we can make humans think that they're talking to humans when they're not. Um, in the US, one of those major companies is Amazon. So in fact, when you chat with a customer service rep, it is very common that a rep at Amazon will have 16 chats running at the same time with wow. 16 customers. Right. And your first thought process is, how is this possible that the agent can type so fast and respond to all these queries but what happens in that customer service industry is there's all these short uh, keys that you can type for different phrases. And in fact, there's a lexicon of hundreds and hundreds of pre-populated phrases. Mm -hmm. So one of them could say, hello, how are you doing today? Or let me look into this query, if you please hold for a couple minutes. And you know, I think at first humans were very um, pleasantly surprised. Oh, wow, what great customer service I'm getting. Um, but the challenge with this Turing test concept is we as humans, we constantly evolve. Once you know you're talking to a machine, we get smarter. And we're constantly thinking about how to hack AI and how to one-up the machine. Mm. And I think that's what's made the Turing test so challenging is that once you get discovered that you're not really a human, then the rules are reset again. And I think that's what we've been seeing with customer service and similar to how Amazon does that. I, I think Flipkart's doing that also out in India. And it's interesting you you talk about X Mahina because I think the concept there is uh, a lot about self-learning where AI actually creates and trains new AI. Is that also a concept that is on the cards or is it already happening? Self-learning is really interesting. There are some startups working on this in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. Um, I think it's still quite new. I think it's a little bit more talked about um, than realistic just yet. Mm -hmm. um, but where it has been realistic is in the video game industry. And with eSports on the rise from games like Fortnite and Dota 2 uh, and League of Legends, I think looking at games like League of Legends, um, this is one where there's been a lot of progress with AI. Uh, but the self-learning hasn't been in the real environment. It's been in the virtual one. Right. So League of Legends is this game where five players have different characters and they control different objects and gain certain uh, skills over time. And in fact, what OpenAI did is they decided to play with this game, uh, as they've done with many games, and train the machine to outperform humans. And what that meant is by playing itself in this subfield of AI called reinforcement learning over many, many games, which ended up being over 100 million games, right. um, the, the machine could get good at detecting patterns. The challenge is a study came out earlier this year that Google spent over $35 million wow. to make that happen. And so 
uh, the thought process is, oh, wow, anyone could build this AI. I think we're going to get there over time, but right now it's a very costly and expensive process. Um, another interesting example on the self-learning is Boston Dynamics. So Boston right. Dynamics is a robotic company uh, that was acquired a few years ago. And what they do now is they have these different robots, and it started out as um a YouTube video series of showing a robot attempting to walk, a robot attempting to open a door. And all this is through sensing audio and video and stimulus in its environment. And how it's evolved into 2019 is these robots can together pull an 18-wheeler truck on the road. Or um, if someone throws an object at the robot, the robot can maintain its balance. Right. Um, or the robot can catch a box or can jump up on top of boxes. So the evolution is happening, um, but the companies that are doing that are putting in billions of dollars just to get those capabilities. Right. And when you talk about the video game, then we also do know what happened with uh, Go and uh, how it was able to actually defeat the world champion there. Yeah, I think AlphaGo and, and the Go uh, game was so fascinating um, because the AI did not win every single game. Right, so there was right. a match a few years ago, right? And I think it was the AI won the first three. And, and so, you know, humans were like, oh, no, humans just can't win. Like the AI outsmarted us. But then what the world champion did is in the fourth game, he completely changed his strategy. He exactly. said, I'm going to do something unconventional. And unfortunately, the AI had not been trained on those unconventional strategies. So guess what happened? The AI started doing these weird behaviors. It started breaking down. And then the human ended up winning that game. Right. But then in game five, like the AI was already starting to pick up on that and easily won its next game. I think this behavior also showed up uh, recently with the video game competition. I think it was between this video game called Dodachu and, the, and, and, and its contestants. Because even in that game, there was some very, uh, there was some crazy behavior that was displayed by the, by the AI during the game. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Even uh, the few weeks ago, another game. Uh, so, for for diving into to this industry, uh, Facebook and OpenAI were working on a project to beat poker. Right. Right. And so, poker's uh, you know a fun game where you can bet and play, and there's so much strategy. And a lot of people like to play online. And Facebook basically said, "Oh, there's a bot now that can beat anyone at poker." So. I think what happens is when these games have AIs that are so good that they could even beat humans in the 99th percentile, then what happens is as a human, do you ever want to play in an environment that you're not sure if you're playing right. non-humans? Right. So for example, if I want to play poker for fun online and bet some money and I don't know the identity of everyone, what if I lose money and then I say, oh, but I wasn't really playing a human, give me my money back. Exactly. So I think that's an interesting space. And I think a subset of experiences that we're going to see evolve is these in-person human-only experiences. In mm -hmm. fact, it'll be a return to the LAN gaming parties of the 1990s. Right. And we started to see it just uh, this past weekend in New York City, uh, where I'm based. Um, 
Fortnite held their annual competition for the best Fortnite player in the world. Oh yeah, I was, was watching. Sorry, I was watching yeah. that with my son because that was one thing he he didn't want me to miss. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. The new generation, uh, Generation Alpha and Z, are into these video game experiences. And so Fortnite was an in-person with all the celebrities at Arthur Ashe Stadium. And right. I'm a big tennis fan, so I'm going to be in Arthur Ashe Stadium in a few weeks. Right. But they Fortnite Epic Games took over the whole Corona Park and took 350 top players and, and played the games. And then there was this 15-year-old kid uh, from Britain who won 1.8 million uh, British pounds, which was incredible. Um, but this goes to show you right. um, that new trends are constantly emerging in technology. And some of those trends are particularly around AI and others are around inhuman experiences. And I've just I just want to go back to Go, and Go is an abstract uh, strategy board game for two players, and this is a very old Chinese game, which is about 2,500 years ago, with the general intention there being that you need to surround the player or grab uh, as as much territory as you can. And uh, it is interesting that uh, you brought it up as well, that uh, these machines do understand uh, not only from instructions fed to them, but just by pure practice and continuous learning, right? Yeah, I think what's interesting is today when you train a machine on data, that model that is trained can be saved. So it's not like each time you play a game, you're starting from scratch. You have all the history accessible. And that's what makes these machines smart. If they've trained on one game, 10 games, or 10,000 games, they're all available to retrieve the information. In fact, to a machine, these are all zeros and ones. Right. They're these numbers that are stored, but that's what makes recall so fast. The challenge is getting good enough data and a long training cycle to then have powerful results. And I think those are still the two challenges in 2019 is enough data, either real or artificial, and by that I mean synthetic or computer-generated data. Right. And then second, having enough compute power um, to process uh, with the algorithm all of this data many, many times, like in Go or like in Dota 2, um, which could cost millions or billions of dollars, um, but to get results that ideally are at the quality or superior quality of how a human would handle the result. And the challenge is if that if you're not going to get to human-level parity or human-level results, why train the AI in the first place? Right. You have to, like the intention of AI is to reduce risk for human, to reduce the need for redundancies, and to help improve quality of life. Um, I have one friend who's a consultant and he travels all over the world. And he recently stayed at the JW Marriott mm -hmm. in uh, Shanghai in China. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, my experience was so interesting. And I said, what's going on? He said, there's no longer bellhop. There's no room delivery. And so I said, that's fascinating. What do you mean? He right. said, I go onto this app and I press what I want, some new toothpaste, some new snacks, some new water. And they have some robots that actually can click and operate the elevator, come up to the floor, 
It has a robot extension to click on my doorbell. It has a compartment that opens up with the item it's delivering. And all this is already automated here in 2019. So this is super fascinating because um, two things. One, it does help create accessibility. So if you are that consultant, you can get your item anytime, any hour you want. Mm -hmm. But it's not just creating accessibility for humans. It's creating the problem of job loss for humans. So we're having this trade-off in AI of, yes, new opportunity, faster experience, more affordable experience, but then where's the future of jobs and work going? But I think that would also lead to probably different types of jobs for for one, which has already been uh, in the news recently, which are super jobs. Would you want to tell us what is a super job? Yeah, so actually in April 2019, Deloitte announced in their annual human capital management report, the future of jobs are super jobs. That's what they coined this year. And these super jobs are basically a job that you're doing the actions of three people. But it's not three people from 2019. This is three people from 2001. So let's think of a big company like Goldman Sachs, Mm -hmm. where you traditionally have financial analysts and they're computing numbers and spreadsheets and, you know, uh, responding to customer service inquiries and generating reports. But um, all that used to be very cumbersome. And now with certain automation techniques, um, the machines and these new softwares can help augment your capabilities. So the new analyst of 2019 uses a software that automatically generates a report, but then they go through the report, make sure it's accurate, fine-tune the numbers and visualizations. Um, Instead of responding to all the customer inquiries, they have a chatbot that facilitates that interaction. Um, instead of manually going through the stock market of the day and the intraday trading, they have some automated reports that indicate what trends, what stocks, what indices are most interested for their customers and that they should consider for trading strategies. So it's rapidly evolved and that means there's so much more information available quicker. But the thing is, not only that analyst has the information, but all analysts have that information. And so right now, companies are playing catch-up as they're generating the super jobs of today. Uh, One of my clients, in fact, Mm -hmm. works very much in the financial advisory space, and we have this conversation with them every single day where no longer um, can they simply interact with their customers by having a human-to-human relationship, but they want to also be able to code, be able to show what's the exciting new technology Mm -hmm. uh, to best help their customer to succeed. Right. And I think it was quite encouraging that uh, Microsoft CEO, I think recently his initiative was more towards interactive AI or moving away from bots and have have uh, have something that is more personalized in your interactions, right? I think there's a need for that. The absolutely interactivity is critical. And, you know, Microsoft is one of the companies I know um, taking the leading edge there. Uh, you know, they recently invested a billion dollars into open AI, which right. is to create 
um, open systems for anyone in the world to get involved in AI. And I recently sat on a panel about voice-based systems um, in the New York area with the founder of Cortana. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about how research has rapidly evolved um, all around the world. Mm -hmm. We're now in a global society where a contributor to a new algorithm could be uh, in Bangladesh, it could be in Mumbai, it could be in Shanghai, it could be in New York City, and they could all be working together, which is quite incredible uh, in the modern era. Right. Is there a simpler way for you to tell us, when we talk about AI, my understanding would be uh, AI encompasses whether it's machine learning. So machine learning would be a subset of AI and then deep learning would be a subset of machine learning. Is there some way that you can make it easy for us to understand uh, how this actually all sits together? Absolutely. So I think that's a great parody that you got spot on. So AI is the big umbrella. Machine learning is smaller uh is is like the dad inside the umbrella and deep learning is the little kid mm-hmm. uh, holding the dad's hand. So what that could look like is you could say AI is... Um, in this case, you know, uh, I want to predict housing prices, mm-hmm. so I'm going to use an algorithm that can search for the best prices. Machine learning is the part where you're doing the training uh, manually for the machine, customizing these parameters, saying, oh, it should be a certain square footage for the house, um, it should be a certain number of rooms for the property, there should be a certain um, area or district that the property's at. The deep learning is the automated part um, where many different signals are being measured and they're all being crisscrossed in different directions to Mm -hmm. see does the size of the property and the amount of rooms have a relationship? Mm -hmm. Does the size and the size of the land also have the relationship and they're run in many different directions um, and that is helping to identify these signals or trends. Um, so I think that's one interesting uh, explanation there. Okay. I think another one is also around images. So let's look at a second example. Mm-hmm. So say you have uh, an image of poisonous vegetation versus Mm -hmm. non-poisonous vegetation, Mm -hmm. Um, the AI would say, can I recognize this as poisonous better than a human can? Mm -hmm. So that's the intention. And and the machine would be, oh, we're going to train something manually and label images, poisonous and Mm non-poisonous. And then the deep learning is attempting to look at different parts of the image to identify those as, ah, this this curve on the leaf would be indicative of um, a poisonous leaf versus this one as a safe leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, those are a couple, couple ways to look at that. Very interesting. And, and does that mean that when you talk about deep learning, deep learning would be modeled more around the human brain and it, we, we then get into neural circuits or neural networks? It is possible to think of that. I know in deep learning, we have this phrase known as neural networks, which is running in many different layers and looking at information. And uh, when you have more than one of those layers, that's actually considered a deep learning 
network. Mm-hmm. Um, the human ba- brain concept is relatively new for deep learning. Some researchers think it does model after the human brain. Others think there might even be other opportunities mm-hmm. that could be more powerful. It just so happens in the last six years that neural networks have become very successful at solving problems. Um, are they going to be the end-all, be-all for AI of the future? Maybe or maybe not. I think time will still tell there. Um, but you know what they're trying to do is similar to how we have all these neurons with synapses that are firing information and interpreting it, even at the unconscious level. Mm-hmm. That's what the machine's attempting to do as well looking at all those different patterns and attempting to form logic and constructors about them to say, here is a sensible pattern I can recognize, and this is consistent over time. And when it becomes consistent, that can be recognized as something that is a repeatable process. Right, right. And that brings me to, to my next thought when we look at the Alexa and the way the Alexa reacts to commands or is picking up information. Is that connected to something around uh, the concept of uh, natural language generation or speech recognition, or is it part of machine learning and built into it as well? I would say it's both, actually. Right. So, you know, if you were someone to have a smart assistant device in your home or work, and whether that's an Amazon, a Google, an Apple, um, a Samsung, any of these devices, mm-hmm. uh, they often have this keyword. They're listening for this keyword. And so the keyword could be Alexa. The keyword could be Bixby. The keyword could be Cortana. And when you say the keyword, they are um, available to respond to what you say. But what happens that's brilliant is not only are they listening for this ambient noise, but secondly, then whatever you say in audio is instantly converted to text. And then once it's converted to text, Mm -hmm. that's a speech to text, um, it's instantly processed in uh, what's known as a corpus of information to identify the right action to take. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you say, Alexa, turn on the lights. Mm -hmm. So first, Alexa triggers the machine. So now it's listening, Mm -hmm. even though it's always listening, which I'll get to momentarily. And then you say, turn on the lights. So it, it takes that phrase, takes my accent and who I am and converts that into zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. And then says, have I heard this before? I have. And then triggers an action by connecting to an API or, Mm -hmm. or a certain, um, interface and then performs that action. And, um, I think, so that's generally how a smart assistant works, and it takes a lot of human programming and a a lot of um, voice accents and voice um, phrases so they can work smarter, so a lot of training. Um, But I think one important thing about the listening is that, um, yes, these devices are always listening. They're always on. They're always on, and I actually think that's good um, because by default, um, they're always on, but they do clear away the information. They do keep everything secure and private, and that information is not being kept. I know there's been a lot of things in the news about, oh, you know, is this information being mined and, and mm-hmm. analyzed without my permission? You know, 
I tell people that if you're concerned about your privacy, uh, then you know you don't need to have a smart assistant in in your your place of living, or right. just have it in the right rooms that you want. Right. Because I think uh, voice is the future. Um, on, on the Humane podcast, I've interviewed both Noel La Charité, who right. runs um, AI uh, tech evangelism at Microsoft, um, as well as I also interviewed um, Dan O'Connell, Correct. who's on the board of Dialpad, which does a lot of voice to text yeah, oh yeah. Uh, for their software. That, that was And a great podcast, by the way. Yeah, thanks so much. It's super fun, and it's always great to interview people in all over the world. And you know, a lot of the guests I get on are between Silicon Valley and London and uh, New York and DC. And, and could be soon. I, I've even chatted with a few uh, guests out of India who've been who've been wanting us to explore this because I found there's such a fascinating statistic. This is such a, uh, a tangent, but this was such a great right. statistic I read the other week. Did you know? That there are, let me make sure I get the statistic right. Did you know that there are more billionaires in India than there are in Silicon Valley? You're talking to one of them. Absolutely, right? In 2019, it's amazing to see, hey, you know what? Absolutely. You know what? We're all a billionaire at heart, oh, yeah, and yeah. we're all we're all working to you know yeah, do the best yeah. um, impact we can. No, no, but you're absolutely right. You know, there is a lot of options as well here in India because more than the billionaire, when it comes to the money, I think the ideas or the talent that we have here is simply outstanding, and I think we can see that all over the world at the moment. Absolutely, and I think it's continuing to evolve. You know, I think talent is about lifelong learning, right. and whether that's picking up artificial intelligence or coding or any of these subfields, it's about first having a curious mind, being willing to learn something new, and then second, being willing to take action. And if you're a student today, I say start by picking up a project, start mm -hmm. by learning, and learning whether it's at an academia program. Mm -hmm. Or for a company you're working for, having that lifelong curiosity to learn is going to future-proof yourself yeah. and have you work on great projects, whether right. that's at home in India or even globally mm -hmm. with the United States and mm -hmm. other organizations. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about these programs and uh, learning techniques for AI, why is the language uh, programming Python been such a go-to program? And I think maybe now it's. Uh, Tender flow from Google, but maybe you're the best person to explain that to us. Python has become in 2019 the leading programming language for AI because of the simplicity to read the language. When you look at other languages like C++ and Java, they require a lot of syntax, and mm -hmm. the syntax is challenging to maintain and easy to forget. Mm -hmm. Python has been developed that all of this is behind the scenes, so it's very human readable. In fact, as a result of that readability, Python has since 1993 grown in popularity mm -hmm. to where in 2019 it has surpassed the number of new developers over the Java programming language for the first time. Mm -hmm. In fact, now it's not the only programming language for AI, but because of its readability, every language from TensorFlow to PyTorch to MXNet and others are saying we're going to be Python compatible because we want to democratize AI and allow everyone to be a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's continuing to evolve and it's a very exciting time to learn to code and to be a programmer in the space. 
Uh, so, David, uh, you earlier mentioned while we were talking that uh, automation, computer vision and language processing are three very important components here. Uh, would you be able to break this down with uh, examples that we could identify with as in normally or in our daily uh, lives? Sure, Jokum. So I think what is going on in your day-to-day life is the best way to understand any new technology. And with artificial intelligence, let's break down all three of these subfields. The first one, automation. So what does that mean? Traditionally, when you interact with companies, with customer service, you might call up and talk to an agent, or you might have a request served online with a human, Mm -hmm. but now that's being supported by a machine. Mm -hmm. So those tree dialogues when you're calling and saying, oh, let me check the status of my order, no longer is it just an agent, but you could type in the number of your order. You can uh, look at the date of your order. You can even process payments. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on for over the past 10 years uh, around the world, but now it's become even more automated, uh, which includes remembering prior information and supporting you for seamless experiences. So that's very exciting in the automation space. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the computer vision space, the biggest one that we're seeing in day-to-day is now having stores, uh, grocery stores and retail stores, which are including purchase at the point of sale that's automated. So whether that means scanning a QR code or a barcode uh, or actually having cameras in the store to start to discover Uh, which items are in your shopping basket to go. Uh, We have new startups, including caper.ai out in Brooklyn, New York, which has invented a shopping cart powered by computer vision, where you could actually purchase in the shopping cart uh, as well as uh, maintain all those items that go in and out. And that's uh, a different model than the Amazon Go store with cameras everywhere all seeing. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing computer vision starting to appear. And I think that's one of the biggest use cases that in the next couple of years we will see uh, permeate everywhere in life with shopping. Mm -hmm. On the natural language processing part, that's about the text, that's about the audio. The biggest use case I'm seeing uh, massive disruption here is also in customer experience and customer service with text. And that means having chatbots and integrated assistants that can use voice and text to better define an experience. Whether that means using an application such as Facebook or Kik or WeChat or WhatsApp or any major messaging uh, application uh, or interacting with your friends where you can speak in your native tongue, whether that is uh, Hindi or English, uh, you can live have those translations. And that's both from a consumer to consumer and business to consumer interaction. Uh, In fact, I had the opportunity um, earlier this summer to speak on the panel with the founder of Cortana, that's Mm -hmm. Microsoft's big uh, voice assistant. And we talked about that now they have this translator app that can in over 50 languages, very high quality, almost in real time, convert the languages. it's incredible. In, in fact, the first time the other day I saw someone speak Mandarin mm. into that translator app and get back English, almost perfect to perfect translation, which to me showed that we're having breakthroughs in semantics and language. So I think those are three big use cases that consumers will see applicable to their life uh, in the next couple of years and even today. 
uh, yeah, I think that makes it easier to understand for us. And for people who are not really in the uh, IT or the tech uh, space, probably something like uh, Google Auto ML uh, or applications like that, is it are those applications intended to make it easier for non-experts so that, like in the good old days, we had to open up systems and get through a lot of data that had to be first organized. But uh, what we have now are ready-made uh, formats or ready-made platforms that uh, where we can go on and also contribute. So w- what would your thought be on, on the Google Auto ML? That's a great question. I think 2016 through 2018 was the rise of infrastructure as a service, mm-hmm. where a lot of platforms were starting to help you launch cloud services. I think 2018 through 2020 is the launch of data science as a service. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of platforms coming out, just as you mentioned, Google Auto ML, where if you're you know more of a business person and less technically savvy, you can still get involved in the data science today. You can take your data, throw it into the system, get some results, and then Google Auto ML supports you to help make those insights so you can drive uh, business decisions. So I think that's one of the products. There's now a whole suite of these data science as a service platforms coming out there. They definitely assist, and uh, it's important to recognize that one of the challenges with these systems, that's why they're still a uh, proof of concept Mm -hmm. and they're evolving day by day, is uh, the results still require a data scientist to have the full insights. And that's why we've had the emergence of the field of explainable AI Mm -hmm. and interpretable AI and AI ethics, all these subfields around can you interpret and explain your results? And what that means is to marry both data with business uh, savvy. Right. And I think also from a business perspective, we are still a bit early because the the revenue generated, I think, for Amazon last year from AI was, was something around 1%, if I'm accurate. Absolutely. It's incredible to think that you have a platform like AWS, which generates uh, over 30 billion US dollars in revenue a year, Mm -hmm. which is now becoming the lion's share of revenue and profit for Amazon as a company. However, from data science and AI and all these services that, that AWS has, it was less than 1%. Now, believe it or not, they make all their revenue from compute, mm-hmm. which means renting servers and storing data and moving data and and having um, people's sites and applications hosted. That's where all the money's been. Mm. And um, one of the fun facts, um, I love to follow new IPOs in the finance world. Mm-hmm. And just this year, Pinterest, right? Pinterest IPO, they're this big app for you know, shopping and experiencing new trends um, globally. And well, they came out with one of their earnings reports at the beginning of 2019. Mm -hmm. And in it, they said, we underestimated our cloud costs for 2018. Mm -hmm. I said, that's fascinating. So I read on and they said, we have an overcharge of an additional $100 million in compute costs. And I found that so fascinating. And they said, because we host everything on AWS, we pay as we scale. So in fact, a lot of companies who are startups, which now are much bigger than startups like Dropbox and Netflix, what they've 
started doing, even including Facebook as well, is creating their own servers, their own internal clouds at their own uh, servers uh, Mm -hmm. throughout the U.S. and globally. And I think that's another trend we're going to see some organizations do that have that scale to launch their own servers. Right. And also the concept of blockchain moving into businesses a little bit more in in aggressively now, how does that tie in with what we currently are witnessing? Yeah, so I know we have uh, Facebook's talked about their Libra project. Um, The People's Republic of China have talked about they have an imminent cryptocurrency ready to go Mm -hmm. on the market. Um, There's a lot of ventures, even in the education space, uh, backing certificates uh, and postgraduate diplomas with blockchain verification. So I think we're starting to see application. I think we're starting to see more adoption. I think one of the biggest challenges with blockchain today is making sure you have a use case. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, um, simply put, blockchain is version control meets databases. Mm. That's what the technology is. And so the big question when you speak to software engineers, they say, well, I have Git, which does version control, and I have databases, either like SQL or these big databases locally or in the cloud, So what's my use case for blockchain? Mm -hmm. I think it does exist. I think there is protections and extra security measures um, powered in that system. And I think the software is still at an early stage that will evolve over time. I think it's important to know that software takes time for mass adoption. Um, Today in the data science in software world, one of the biggest version control systems is Git. Right, this Git version control system, mm-hmm. which is hosted on GitHub and GitLab and Bitbucket and all these platforms. But did you know that the latest stable release of the Git version control system was released in 1991? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost 27 years ago, that system was released, and that's still state-of-the-art today. Mm -hmm. So it took them a long time to get there. And so that's why, you know, blockchain, I think it's still a very nascent industry that's still being discovered. And like all industries, there will be shakeout, um, but there will be some winners that um, emerge. And looking forward to see what that looks like. And blockchain for communication does offer some kind of uh, protection. And would that make sense? Because if that was the case and we had that technology, then Edward Snowden would not have been uh, detected. Yeah, so super interesting. If we think about uh, data leaks and, you know, corporate or government espionage from a security perspective and how do you detect someone or not? And and if we look at the Edward Snowden case, right? So so even though he was this whistleblower and he he shared these secrets that he thought were, you know, morally wrong, um, well, he didn't anonymously do that, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So he, even though he, even though Whistleblower Act protects you, it Mm -hmm. wasn't really anonymous so he got death threats and people you know reacted to those responses and so blockchain could protect that the thing to know about um, this whole um, anonymity uh, mm-hmm. feature of blockchain right. is you are anonymous and that is great and super useful until you are no longer anonymous mm-hmm. and once you're no longer anonymous once you're known or found out there's no way going back so it's super interesting. And I like to say one of our um, 
one of our leading applications in the U.S. that has been growing globally is Snapchat. And um, they don't do blockchain, but what I find interesting about them is they do that um, immutable uh, messaging in the sense that you have a message and then it disappears and it was unique and it's no longer available. So that does have security built in. I think uh, we're going to just have more privacy, more security features, and more user-centric design Mm -hmm. moving forward. Uh, If I give a couple blockchain uh, cases that I think are fascinating, in Brooklyn, New York, we have one called Query. Mm-hmm. Queries QUR.io, and they are creating the first GitHub version control on the blockchain. Okay. So they just came out of stealth a few months ago, and it's a phenomenal product that I played around with, and I think it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And another one that I really like, also in Brooklyn, so as you get a sense, remember I'm in New York City, yes, so I we can. have a lot of startups. Yes, I can and, and And blockchain, right, is is one of the big trends also in New York, right? Consensus is, is based here in many other organizations. So right. um, Shopin, the startup called S-H-O-P-I-N, mm-hmm. is actually working on building a, a blockchain-based retail profile on each person. Mm-hmm. So all your biometrics and information, keeping that secure. So when you go shopping, you're able to pull that up at any store, whether that is, you know, Flipkart or Macy's or whatnot, you you can make sure uh, you have that consistent and secure information like your body weight, your height, and your preferences. Mm -hmm. So I definitely see a merit. um, and, And I'll just reiterate, we're in the early stage of that market. So it should be really cool to see um, what winners emerge in the next couple of years. Right. And for somebody who's who's listening to this, it's, it's easy for them to get overwhelmed with uh, the information that uh, they are listening to. And from a common uh, consumer point of view, you mentioned something that's really important and you spoke about uh, data privacy and security, where there is, I was reading this uh, article that said that over 40% of the people worldwide feel they lack control over their personal data, according to a survey by McAfee. And, you know, one third of parents don't know how to explain online security risks to their children. So what I would just want to do, David, is I would want to just ask you, you know, common questions that we would have a chance to ask you now regarding uh, protection of data. And I'm talking from, uh, from myself, for example, or for somebody who's listening to this. And I would like to go back to when it comes to, you know, your passwords. And that's the most common experience all of us have with technology. So what we've been told regularly is, you know, use a complicated password one and then keep changing your password regularly. So now, Can can you clarify this for us? Is this accurate? Should we be doing this or should we be doing something else with our passwords? So passwords is definitely um, one of the biggest uh, risks and protections for privacy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a developer myself, I am on hundreds of sites and platforms. <laughs> and to remember so many passwords could be very complicated. And to use the same password puts you at a security risk. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of unique things done for security um, just in the last five years that I think can help everyone have more control uh, of their accounts online. Mm-hmm. First, 
if a platform that you're on, an app or a website, uh, allows multi-factor authentication. That means they either text you a security code when you sign in, uh, or they use some sort of authenticator app like Authy, Google Authenticator, or one of the other um, open auth companies, that creates an additional security. That means no one can sign in without that information and it's registered to your device. So that's always a protection. Mm -hmm. So even if you do use the same password in a few sites, that should give you an extra layer of privacy. Um, Beyond that, I am all about having unique passwords for everything. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite platforms is 1Password. There's a few other platforms out there now that basically allow you to create um, a master password encrypted uh, setup, and then they randomly generate passwords for all your accounts. Mm -hmm. And it's super cool because now I have a unique, you know, long uh, password for all my accounts. And they also notify you when any of the websites you're on have security breaches. So they let you know, ah, okay, maybe you should change this password. And it's as easy as signing into the website, choosing a new password, and I'm done. And then I don't have to memorize my passwords, so there's always less risk that um, I have information overload or in case, you know, there's ever that uh, problem that, you know, I need to remember them in that weird situation. So so I think those are two things we can do. about how our data is being used online from a privacy perspective, um, mm-hmm. everything you are doing is always being tracked. Mm-hmm. Whether you think it or not, whether a company tells you or not, everything is always being tracked. And sorry, you mean that uh, when you say tracked, you mean it's collected somewhere, but it's not like somebody is tracking it live. Not necessarily live, absolutely. So, for example, you know, we're doing this podcast recording on a platform, mm. and that platform um, is probably also backing up this information and then taking this audio, converting it to text, mm-hmm. better understanding the context of our dialogue, mm-hmm. and then making predictions with uh, natural language processing mm-hmm. or text uh, auto completion features on their platform, mm-hmm. um, even without our permission, because we've opted in by using their product. to uh, consent with that. The same thing is when you're browsing the web, even if you're using any application in a privacy mode, uh, at the same token, uh, there is no privacy mode. Um, It's it's marketed and advertised as such, but your information is still accessible by that platform. Um, The only case you're really going to get that privacy if you have something that you're you're doing that you're you're trying not to have um, shared with others would be using... Um, an anonymous platform like a Tor or one of those other agents that truly creates um, a mesh decentralized network that's fully anonymous, which brings us back to the blockchain case, right? right. How can we get anonymous? Right. But for, for the most of us or the rest of us, um, the two simplest things you can do uh, to protect your information is use a general password protector and have a different password for every account and do multi-factor authentication. Then no one's going to access your information without your permission. Right. And there has been this talk also about, I don't know whether this, uh, the truth and myth about this, but that says avoid using free Wi-Fi. Now, is this something that is uh, just a rumor? Is it something that is genuinely a concern? 
You know, free Wi-Fi is so interesting because we're living in a world where we want access for all. Mm -hmm. And for example, if you went to the local coffee shop and they had free Wi-Fi there, uh, you think, oh, it's great. It's from from the restaurant. I can just connect. Um, There are hackers today who are able to spoof those free Wi-Fis Mm -hmm. and make it look it's exactly from the restaurant, but it's not. Um, Usually what they'll do in the name of the Wi-Fi network, they'll put a star or an underline or something next to it. So you think it's that Wi-Fi network. Um, but then when you're signing in, you're giving them your information. So that's one way to get spoofed. The second one is that once you connect there, um, they're able to see what you're doing online while you're connected to that network. Mm-hmm. Now, most reputable businesses pay attention to the Wi-Fi networks in their area. Uh, so they're able to mitigate that and you know generally make sure there's the well-being of their customers, but not everyone has technologically savvy staff available on demand. Um, so I say if that is something that you are concerned about, then definitely be sure to uh, bring your own you know, portable wireless device or hotspot right. um, to ensure that security. Um, the one way to always know that you are secure uh, and you're not being spoofed, mm-hmm. um, believe it or not, is an Ethernet connection. Wow. I know it's 2019. That's we all want to go wireless and Wi-Fi. But you know the one thing you still get from a wired Ethernet LAN connection? You get a faster connection. Mm-hmm. So you get more security and faster. What's more to like? That's very interesting. And what about uh, your location your, your location tracking? Uh, leaving that on in your phone. How healthy is that? You know, location tracking for the phone is great because a lot of your applications need uh, location tracking right. to give you the most personalized experience. Um, but also location tracking drains your battery like mm-hmm. no other feature mm-hmm. on the phone. Mm-hmm. So believe it or not, um, I actually disable my location tracking at all all times except when I need to use it for applications. Right. So right. if I'm going to be getting shared transportation, then I turn on the location tracking. Right. Otherwise, I don't. I think if developers can design their applications to minimize how much the battery is used, someone like myself actually might leave location tracking on longer, mm-hmm. but there still is the risk of leaving it on and what that could result in. Mm. For example, um, one of the big apps that I use, Map My Runs, which is for running and training, and you could do that outside with, with location, mm-hmm. here in the U.S. has gained a lot of popularity because... You know, you get coupons and discounts for running and and all these rewards. But the thing is, a lot of our military soldiers in the U.S. were using that app Mm -hmm. when they were on bases outside the U.S. in certain countries. And what happened is the platform was not securing the location data. Mm -hmm. And some developers said, oh, we discovered, look, this is where your military base is. Mm -hmm. This is where your soldiers are training and doing their runs. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine. Imagine if that information went into the wrong hands, Absolutely. well, a lot of bad things could happen. So, so I generally say, you know, when you put location on, be mindful why you put it on um, and only keep it on when you need it. Um, I don't think you're going to lose much feature capabilities by turning it off. You'll realize you use it a lot less frequently than you think you do. Right. And so... Uh, Just to put this together once again, three very important tips from you. One is keep changing your password. The second is if you do use free Wi-Fi, you've got to check the authentication of that particular uh, that particular location that you're using Wi-Fi from and using your location device 
I would just want to ask you if you could explain to us a little bit about spear phishing because uh, this is where you know you get an email spoofing attack and it targets you at a, maybe as an individual seeking unauthorized access to sensitive information how does this mm-hmm. work for a lot of people we've been having these emails that come into our browsers or our systems and we've been told the moment you click and open the email you're part of it then so how how do we actually uh, deal with this Sure. So the spear fashion technique is say you normally get an email from Microsoft and it says you received a notification on Microsoft Teams or on this this document that you collaborate on. And usually you click it and you see your notification or you see the paper or project that you worked on with a colleague. But what a company could do is that um, a hacker could spoof that by designing an email that looks exactly like it's from Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And when you click that notification or that collaboration button, it brings you to a page that also looks just like the Microsoft website, mm-hmm. but then it asks you to sign in or mm-hmm. put your credentials. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, guess what? Then the information's available to the hackers. Right. Um, So how can you defend yourself against this? Several things. First, you can always check uh, who you got from the email. Mm -hmm. So make sure it would say at Microsoft.com or whichever website or platform. Mm -hmm. Second, um, whenever you do have to give credentials, if you sign in, double check the web URL. Make sure it actually says Mm Microsoft.com and so forth. Um, and you know, with certain of these password protection apps like One Password, uh, because I uh, don't manually type my passwords in, it will only authenticate it if it's on the website. Mm-hmm. So if I accidentally open the spoof email for a Microsoft Teams invitation, and then my applic- my my password wouldn't fill in, so mm-hmm. I'd say, "Oh, that's strange." Um, beyond that, another way you can protect yourself. Uh, which doesn't hurt, right, is reach out to your colleague or your friend. Right. Hey, I saw that you sent me a notification on this this Teams app. Uh, can we just double check? Is this something you sent? Mm-hmm. Um, in today's day and age, it never hurts to be extra safe and extra secure. So those are ways you can protect against it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they are happening all the time now, these spear phishing and spoofs. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, our spam catches most of them Mm -hmm. but if it does hit your main inbox those are some tips i recommend and i think this brings us back to something that i think you have been also speaking about earlier that is ethical decision making in in the ai space today and where we uh, see ourselves going from here because you know the more we hand over these decisions or or decisions that need to be made for us as individuals by ai it does affect uh our moral decision-making because we tend to follow probably an algorithm or what is the best option out. Where do where do morals come in here, David? You know, if we think of ourselves as humans, when you make any decision mm-hmm. each day, usually you're making a decision that you're choosing to make. For mm-hmm. example, you wake up and then you say, oh, it's time to get breakfast. It's time to brush my teeth. It's time to drop the kids off at school. It's time to, you know, take my vitamins. You have a process and usually the process is repetitive. It's the same process over and over and you're consciously making that decision. Um, But as a human, we have free will. But in general, it's still the same decision. So the algorithms, we as humans are programming them to make decisions. And they usually make them in a certain uh, order and with a certain speed and with a certain clarity based on how it's designed. 
Now, the challenge is that uh, a process works for a use case, uh, but not necessarily for all use cases. Right. So you make an algorithm that says, you know, uh, remind me to take out the dog at this time. Remind me to grab breakfast at this time. That's great. But does that mean that algorithm can also remind you that a call is incoming? Not necessarily. You'd have to change that program to do that. Right. Uh, and when we're thinking about ethics in these algorithms, it's about the use cases. Are they covering all scenarios? Mm-hmm. And are they covering scenarios that are accessible for all people, uh, and they're doing the right thing, the morally correct decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, um, one case that's been challenging now in the algorithm space is when you call customer service for a company that you purchase a product from, mm-hmm. a lot of the companies now use these AI-powered systems to actually find out how angry or calm are you on that call or email or digital chat and based on how angry or calm you are Mm -hmm. they decide whether they will process your refund or they're going to test your patience that's very interesting and yeah yeah this is called hacking ai this is a whole new emerging field that although it's been around for a while it's gaining popularity now Mm -hmm. and that's quite ethically challenging you know is it appropriate to say and like you mentioned sorry to break in but uh, i also think it's the same case with radio because i've heard that over the years uh, radio broadcasters have always been broadcasting happy music so you would very rarely listen to sad songs on the radio because the happier you are the more you're going to consume and the more you're going to buy that works and that makes sense with what you're saying now Sure, yeah. All those radio waves, you know, those uh, broadcasters, perhaps they have analysts working for the companies, seeing which music has more listeners or followers staying on, which ones are better enjoying. Perhaps could the music before the radio broadcaster says, okay, who would like to call in with questions for our our Q&A period, see if people are more calm or more angry as well. So I completely agree with that. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And when you talk about, uh, we were just talking sometime earlier about certain terms, I would just want to get back to that a a little bit so that my listeners can understand a little bit more here. Uh, We hear about doxing a lot these days. So could you tell us a little bit about doxing exactly? This is so interesting because we were before the recording today talking about that in the U.S. that term used to be used from mm-hmm. IT and privacy researchers, mm-hmm. um, but no longer is that the phrase. It's mm-hmm. actually been renamed as deep fakes. Oh, so that's the new term that is in the industry now where when your documents, your material, your images, your video, your audio, all that information is being used to then impersonate you. Right, and that's so fascinating. Um, in fact, there was a a case the other day um, of a perfect example of doxing or deepfakes being used. Mm-hmm. So. We have the 2020 election coming up in the U.S. soon. And there are so many candidates on all sides of the parties. Mm. And one of them um, is uh, a very prominent candidate. So I won't name the candidate. Mm -hmm. But basically that candidate's team decided to create a doxing or deep fake of their face, video, and audio. And how they did this is they said, okay, Uh, unfortunately, the candidate is sick today. And this was in front of a live audience. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the candidate is sick. They're not going to be here. They send their regards. So they've pre-recorded a video for you. And they're going to come in on Skype 
to share that information. Um, so let's let's listen into what they have to say. And then the video starts to play in front of an audience of several hundred people. Hmm. And at the end of it, not a single person thought it was fake. Wow. Not a single person thought it was docs, but in fact, there were data scientists, researchers on this team that took the real video of someone else mm-hmm. with the audio spliced robotically, but very modern, of this candidate mm-hmm. and some text and fabricated the whole thing and people thought it was real. Mm-hmm. So it is possible. It is dangerous. This whole uh, doxing deep fake industry is taking off um, mostly from research now by hackers and I think there's going to be a lot of risk not just with candidate campaigns but imagine you get a call from someone that sounds like a concerned family member right. hey David uh, I'm trapped on the side of the road in this state I forgot your credit card information can you tell it to me so I can pay the tow truck to get my car running again exactly Right? Like, if it sounds like my parents, am I going to object to it? Let me verify. Are you really my mom? Are you really my dad? Right? Right? Like, we we probably wouldn't. So I think that's an emerging industry that we're going to see a lot of issues with. And uh, time will tell how we'll be able to build a defense against it. Right. And I think we just all need to be aware of it. And I'm also aware, David, that uh, we have spent a lot of time on, on this podcast. And I want to thank you for that. But before we go... Uh, David, I just want to ask you, what are your thoughts on what's coming next? So when we talk about the next 20 years, 20 years is a lot of time as far as technology or the AI space is concerned. But what do you see happening with uh, robots and how do we move forward from here? Do we see uh, changes uh, or do we think that this is going to take off in another direction? Robots are becoming very useful and very important, and not just in a business case with farming and creating products, but I think in assisting humans as well. Um, I don't know the exact time frame for it, but we're starting to see some really cool robots from Boston Dynamics. I think where it's moving towards is imagine you're someone who's in your 70s or 80s and you have difficulty walking. Mm -hmm. No longer may you need a nurse to actually walk with you, but what if you have a robot nurse that you hold on to? Mm -hmm. What if you have a robot nurse that helps you with physical therapy, injecting a needle for your pain medications? I think we're going to move there in the next few years. I can see a robot that's going to have infrared in its eyes. It finds the exact spot of your arm where the vein is, Mm -hmm. injects the needle perfectly, right? (laughs) Gives you the exact dose, Mm -hmm. not a milliliter too much or too little, um, and can help you recover faster. Um, Perhaps we'll have these robots that will be able to do dishes, that will be able to cook food, Um, I think, yes, if we're looking 20 years out, that is definitely the direction we're moving. Um, In the next five years, we're going to start seeing it. But one of the big advances you can you can just see in robots is for example there used to be the the techno dog this is like from the late 90s right, right. Uh, that would be very simple you press a button it wags its tail you press a button it lights up its eyes but now sony just came out with a three thousand dollar version wow. of this new techno dog in 2019 where 
it can roll over and you can pet it, mm. but then it can roll back up and it mm. can walk and run and um, it can respond to your voice. So I think we're starting to see still that nascent development of robots for consumers. Right. Most of it's been sa- safeguarded by enterprise for building cars, for farming, uh, for developing more uh, efficient processes mm-hmm. for products. Right. And I think we're going to see um, an emergence of robots into the consumer space as far as services. The three biggest subfields that we're going to see massive growth in the next 20 years is first, the AI and data revolution. Second, the connected devices and IoT infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, robotic automation or or RPA. Mm -hmm. Those are the three that I am bullish on. That's where I invest. That's where I advise. And that's where I think we're going to see a lot of breakthroughs. Very interesting. You have a very positive outlook, David. So you do not agree with Sam Harris when he says that with every new truth, comes a new way to lie and he's worried about AI taking over and not only him but I think uh, Stephen Hawking had the concern as well. You know I see their concerns and their concerns are completely justified but that's why we need to strike the right balance Mm -hmm. between politically governing and having free markets and I think similarly both in the US and India there is some balance of these markets where we're constantly trying to see how much freedom and how much control do you have. Mm -hmm. As long as we have a balance and we constantly move governance with technology, I think we can build a society where not too much risk is provided, Mm -hmm. but a lot of gain is offered uh, for all populations in big cities and in rural settings as well. And I don't think we'll get into the 2001 Space Odyssey, where HAL 9000 says this mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. So David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've had a great time listening to you. I'm sure everybody who's heard this podcast has so much to take away from here. We here in India, we just hope that you had a good time as well talking to us and thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I think we're moving into a very fast-paced world where technology is permeating our culture, it's permeating our work, and it's permeating our personal lives. And I think that if we're thinking first about how to build systems uh, where all humans are part of the process, where we think of technology first as an enabler for accessibility, and where we think of building systems that augment humans for greater capabilities, where we collaborate together, then we're moving into a world defined by progress, where technology is an assistant, an enabler, and the future for humanity. It's really great to be here, and thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you, David. Thank you.